Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. I'll be reading from Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. The Choosing of the Seven. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of the go- uh, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Morning, church. Um, a uh, several years ago, when when I first got married. Um, uh, Jen moved into the apartment I was living at, and what I noticed was, um, you know, after marriage and, and in this place that I had been before, um, without her, suddenly there were containers and uh, baskets for stuff. And every day she would kind of say, okay, you need to put this here, and I got a basket for this. And I was afraid one day I was going to come home and there was going to be a big one for me that I had to get into at the end of the night um, and be put away because everything was suddenly organized. And of course, in those stages, you're at Ikea all the time because Ikea is Swedish for there's a bucket for everything. Um, and, and that's kind of what that means. And what I was thinking about, actually, in that respect, is many of us view life that way. In fact, that's, that tends to be the, the view of our culture when it comes to life, that life has various compartments in it, um, like those big, those big IKEA things, with the, and you can buy buckets for everything. And in your bucket, you know, you have your, your money in one bucket, and you have your job in another bucket, and you have your family or your personal relationships in another bucket, and you have your sexuality and your view on that in another bucket, and maybe you have a bucket for spirituality as well. But all of these things are not, they don't really touch each other. They're separate. And so what I do at my workplace is, is separate from what happens at home, and what happens at home doesn't affect what happens at work. And what I do in my personal life or my personal sexual ethic shouldn't affect the kind of person I am in public because they're just separate. And some people have a spirituality bucket and there's stuff in it, and other people say, yeah, I don't have a bucket for that. I, that's not really something that I'm interested in. And so you can take it or leave it. And whatever's in that bucket, for some, it may be Oprah's book club. It may be church for some people. It may be another holy place. It may be meditation or whatever. But some people have stuff in it and some people don't. And so that our lives, in a sense, are these buckets that don't touch each other. And we all have different ones and different things in it. And you just decide. And it is a compartmentalized life. And in many ways, the church has kind of bought into this thinking, certainly when it comes to spirituality, that you may have a spirituality bucket or not. And so for some people in the world, they think, well, I don't, I'm not into that. For you, it's yoga. For you, it's your faith. But for me, it's my family or exercise or education or sports. And so you have one or you don't, it doesn't matter. And in the church, we have actually largely bought this idea of spirituality because 
practically speaking, we're not really sure what our faith has to do with the rest of our lives. Some of us even grew up uh, where we literally had a drawer for Sunday clothes, and they were only for Sunday, and you had to wear them separately, and there were certain things you did on Sunday you didn't do other days, and they weren't to touch, and then you'd come home and, in a sense, put on your normal clothes and go on with your normal life. And in fact, as it played out in life, God didn't seem so close. And so there were activities that were um, kind of spiritual activities that maybe you did on a holy day, um, but they weren't really, they were kind of like praying and singing and reading your Bible, but they didn't touch so much what you did the rest of the week. And, and then maybe you struggled to see or sense God in his presence in your life the, the rest of the week. Maybe actually the thought never occurred to you that what happened on Sunday might have something to do with Monday or Friday. Um, or maybe you thought that it should, but you struggled that it didn't, and you couldn't figure out, and maybe your religious experience or whatever it was that you did on that holy day or read, you thought, how come, how come this seems like some other world than the world that I live in? I think by and large, many of us either just by default or by choice or by generally sort of adopting the views of the culture that has just a bucket for everything and things don't touch, um, but it has created a lot of, of chaos, at least confusion, if not chaos, in our society. And so you have some people who think, well, that's not really for me. I don't, I don't need a spirituality bucket. You need that. I have other things. I have nothing in that for me. Or perhaps you have people who had a lot in that bucket, but then ended up doing other things in the rest of the buckets of their lives that created this sense of dissonance with what they were saying or doing in their spiritual lives. And so often then you know, terrible, tragic stories of hypocrisy come out, even with church leaders. How could they be saying this or doing this on Sunday? And of course, those, those are just regularly in uh, the media. And again, it's not exclusive to the church, just the church is not immune to it. In every way, we have people suddenly, stuff's happening out in our lives that is different than who we appear to be, and we realize, wow, who that, that person's life is crumbling, and they were projecting a certain kind of image. And we see this with business leaders and with church leaders and political leaders and family leaders and all of that stuff. And yet in the church, there's something drastically wrong with that. And maybe in its, in its best form, many of us just live with this sense of disconnection between God on Sunday and God in my everything and in my world, which is actually really tragic when we read the, I don't know my Bible here, okay, it's on here, okay, and we read the scriptures, the story of, of the scriptures, and, and as I've said to you so many times, the scriptures are not really just sort of a rule book for how to live life, although there's much wisdom in it, but it is a story, a true story about God and about his relationship with his creation with us. And as we understand it more, we understand him more. And as we understand him more, we understand ourselves more. And one of the things we see in the opening pages of Scripture is God at work. In fact, creating a material world. Because you see, one of the things that happens when we separate um, spirituality from everything else, some people have this mentality of spirituality that is, um, it's private and it's non-material. It has nothing to do with the material of life. It's a private thing, whatever you choose to do, and it's not, it has to do with flesh and blood, it has to do with your psyche and the inner state of your soul, some way, and that's all it is, and therefore whatever feeds your soul or calms your mind is fine for you, but the scriptures actually don't speak of a spirituality like that. In fact, the central figure of spiritual life is God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and what we find at the beginning of that is God involved in dirt, the earth, creating it, all pieces of it, 
not simply describing some spiritual, ethereal, otherworldly, non-material experience, but God creating a material world. Song's going off in your head for some of you. Some of you are like, what song? Never mind. Um, And God placing human beings in it, making them what? Out of clay. In a sense, we see God digging at the dirt, creating life. And, and it's actually, if you read uh, Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, notes that the description of God at work that is chosen in the Hebrew language is not um, work of an executive, but work of a, of a workman, of a digger, a ditch digger, a gardener. And so, in fact, the description of God at work describes God as a blue-collar man. Another song is going off for some of you, <clears throat> and the rest of you should look it up. Um, that God is actually at work as in, in doing menial, what we would call menial, blue-collar tasks, like up to his neck in work, effort, sweat, dirt. Right away, the scriptures begin to blow apart this paradigm where we have separated spirituality as being private and non-material and earth as something else. God creating, putting human beings in it to work in it, saying all of this is good. And then Jesus comes, to show us God in the flesh. And if you read the Gospels, there's four biographies for us that tell us about the life of Jesus. What you will find, if you just kind of read them quickly or look at them at a glance or look at the headings of each chapter, you see the movement of Jesus as in God doing stuff. It is not God simply sitting on a mountain doling out spiritual advice, although Jesus taught. But he taught about life the stuff of life, but then he did stuff. He was always on the move. He was always surrounded by people. He was, in a sense, we now see visually God at work in the lives of people. And so somehow spirituality and the stuff of life were never meant to be separated, and in God and his creation, Father, Son, Spirit, and then Jesus when he comes in the flesh to show us who God is and what would God do on the earth, we find is not someone who's only separated in the cloistered halls of religion saying some stuff about somehow try to separate yourself from this material world and achieve an inner state of peace. No, but that he was everywhere. He was in the synagogue, yes, but he was in people's homes, and he was out on the street, and he was where the people were, and he was in the boats, and he was on the beach, and he was talking and healing and doing work. And so it begins to explain to us this paradigm of spirituality that has very much to do with the work of our hands, with what we do in life. It, it blows apart any kind of separation that we would want to make between God and my everyday between God and the work of my hands, if we can use that phrase. The passage that Bryden read for you is early on in the birth of the church. And so, you know, the trajectory of sort of the, the story of human history is the sense that God coming into our world to save us, to redeem us, to fix, and, and, and to start uh, making all things new eventually where every tear will be wiped away from our eye and everything that is not right will be set right on the earth and you and I will be a part of a new creation. And we are in the middle of that work. And as Jesus came and then said he was leaving the earth, the disciples were like, no, 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 this is bad. And he's like, no, no, this is good. I'm going to form a people that are going to represent me on the earth and I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit and you are going to be my people. And this, the premise of the series that we're recalling fully alive because we said, look, to actually find life And to realize that we are fully alive, not just in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense and in every day of our lives, is to understand that God has brought us together as a community of people and given us his Holy Spirit so that we would have the experience of Jesus with us, amongst us, and that the world will be able to see Jesus 
through us. And in the book of Acts, it describes, in a sense, that the book of Acts is almost like our, it's our family tree. It's our history. We understand who we are meant to be, in a sense, by looking at the way the early church was. And one of the things that you find, you see, in the book of Acts, when they were starting to teach this word about Jesus, and word was getting out about who Jesus really was, and people were starting to believe, and thousands of people were starting to move to this movement, some of them were having to leave, they were getting kicked out of their families because they were aligning themselves with this rogue kind of upstart movement called the way. And some people were losing their jobs, losing their homes. And so they were coming together, literally having to find a new family. And it was beautiful because this family wasn't defined the way every other um, uh, segment of people was defined in that world. It wasn't defined by your ethnic background. You think we have racial tensions here. We got nothing on what it was like back then. You, there was no such thing as sort of this intermingling. You, you, you looked out for your own, your own family and your own people. And yet, the good news of Jesus Christ was that it doesn't matter what your skin color is, it doesn't matter what your language is, it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is, it doesn't matter whether you're a male or female, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past, whether you look yourself as a holy person or not, Jesus has come to show the love of the Father and to transform every life. And so this community was coming together that was not defined by all these things, but what meant, that meant was many of them had needs. They needed each other. And so the work of the gospel wasn't just this spiritual work. So the apostles are teaching all about Jesus. And yet there's this community coming together and realize, wow, as we form a community, we actually have more than just spiritual needs. We have needs for food and clothing and life and community and work together. And so there comes to this point where there are widows who now are being cared for. If you were a widow, basically you were destitute in, in that culture because um, your husband and your family name and everything was your identity. And so if you lost your husband, and if your husband's family wouldn't graciously take you in, or maybe they would have before you told them that you were a follower of Jesus, you had no hope. And so the church became this community that looked after each other. But it looked like there were some racial tensions coming up, or some weren't getting enough food or whatever. And so the disciples kind of put a stop, and they get everyone together, and they look, this isn't working. We need better distribution of food. We need people to be doing stuff. And we can't do that because we're preaching the word. Now, if you, if you read the, the text that was up there on the screen, it's on the back of your bulletin, you might read it and go, well, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of arrogant. It says, um, it says, it wouldn't be right, the apostles are saying this. Uh, these are the, the, uh, the ones who were the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus that were teaching about him. They said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God, in other words, telling people about Jesus, in order to wait on tables. They might say, well, that's a bit like, you know, Sounds like a disparaging comment, but remember, we talked about last week, this, this whole idea of spiritual gifts has nothing to do with, like, importance of title or role, the character. There's no pride. They just said, look, this needs to be done, but we're doing this. We can't do this. And so we know this because it doesn't say, look, choose some warm bodies to help serve people. It says, choose people who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit. So there was this kind of spiritual work that we, we went, and I'm using this term, and I don't mean we should use this, but this is how maybe they thought of it, preaching the word, telling people about Jesus, that's spiritual work, and now there's this unspiritual work like making sure everybody gets fed that needs to be done. There's some doing work. But we can't think that way because they said in order to do, we can't do the preaching work, so can you get somebody to do the doing work, and the doing work people, the qualification, don't miss this, is they need to be full of the Holy Spirit. See, we're in this exploration about spiritual gifts, and when we begin talking about spiritual gifts, it's very easy for us to say, okay, I don't know what that is. Or if I think I know what that is, that's like people who preach and pray and sing spiritual songs. That's what spiritual gifts are. 
And we're actually saying, no, no, like there are all kinds of gifts. Some of them are doing gifts. Some of them are speaking gifts and some of them are demonstrating gifts. And we're talking about the doing gifts today. And this passage actually tells us, no, every one of them needs to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. In other words, every one of these gifts empowers spiritual work. And so here's the thing that you need to understand. God moves when we do. God moves when we do. It has two meanings. One is, when you do, some of you are going to discover over these next few weeks, maybe you already know this, that you have gifts that do. You're a hands-on kind of person. And maybe you actually, you've always felt like, well, I can do this, I can do that, but I don't think that's really spiritual work. I just kind of help out. I just kind of do this. I just kind of do that. The scriptures actually say there are gifts that are given to us that are doing gifts. They are hands-on gifts. They are roll up our sleeves, get sweaty, up to our neck in dirt kind of gifts. And they are spiritual activity. There are kinds of gifts that do, that have nothing to do with preaching or reading God's word. The things that we would categorize narrowly or classify certain jobs like a pastor or something as spiritual work and everything else is unspiritual or whatever you want to call it. No, that there are gifts in the body that we've been given to do that are gifts that do. And some of you, for the longest time, feel like, I don't know, it doesn't feel spiritual to me, or I don't look very spiritual, but I'm just, this is just what I do, this is who I am. I can't do that, or I can't do that, or I don't feel like doing that, or I'm not gifted to do that, but I do this. Well, God moves when we do. And this is the whole premise of this, right? Is that when you and I use our spiritual gifts, and this is why every one of us has to discover what they are, because every one of us has them. God shows up and moves and makes himself visible. Jesus becomes visible in you and I as the community when we do what we're called to do. Especially those of you that have the gifts that do. And I'm gonna, when I'm going to walk through them in a few minutes, there are things that every one of us should do, but there are some of you that have like spiritual steroid power to do it, okay? I know that's, that's inappropriate to talk about steroids, but you know what I'm saying. It's like... When you do it, for some reason, it's way more powerful than when I do it or somebody else does it. Like, there's just an impact that comes. And when you do, God moves. He makes himself visible through you when you do. And as we're going to talk over the next little while, as you're figuring out, maybe, hey, maybe this is me. Maybe I have one or two or a bunch of these gifts. Well, like, God actually makes himself visible to other people when I do this. And somehow... God has chosen to bind himself to our activity. And what that means is this. God will not just do without you and me. He can. But somehow, and we see this in prayer, we see this all the way through scripture, he has chosen us, sinful, fallen, everyday people, to somehow be a display of his glory. And so he has bound himself to our activity. And so he says, you do so that I can move. I could do it without you, but I don't want to. And so I'm going to wait. And as you move, I'm going to move. As you do, I move. Do you get that? So we have both a responsibility to demonstrate Jesus to people around us by doing the things that we do. And as we get into this, some of you are like, well, who wouldn't do that? No, you have power to do that. It seems normal to you. It comes naturally to you. It's not normal or natural for the rest of us. But as you do it, Jesus makes himself visible in you. Um, I'm going to invite Catherine Doyle up. Now, Catherine is one of the people in our church who has been doing at our church forever and has done so many things, so many different things, some of which she would say, oh, yeah, that was kind of 
always felt like I was someone to do this, some of which would have been totally new for her. But I asked her to share with you what God has done in her and through her as she has been someone who has used gifts uh, that do. So Catherine, come up and share with us. My name's Catherine Doyle, and uh, I'm one of the doers here at Upper Room. I'm really a lot more comfortable up there running the computer or baking for the 30-minute party or something like that. But there are times when, um, when God kind of calls you to step out of the boat into the water and s let him take you to a new place. And hopefully you won't sink doing it. Um, I'd, like to give you, I'd like to share with you some of the things God's been doing in my life over the last few years. And to do that, I need to give you a brief picture of my background and my journey to this place. Uh, when I was growing up, my family attended a um, church every Sunday. It was a liturgical church. And we sat and listened, spoke the written responses, and left without ever speaking personally to anyone. I learned about God, his power and laws, his love and his son. I accepted everything I learned and carried in my mind an image of a loving, powerful, but distant God who only wanted my obedience and respect. At the beginning of grade 11, a Christian group started in my school. Uh, a friend took me to the first meeting, and there I learned that God, in fact, wanted a close personal relationship with me. I began reading the Bible for the first time. Sorry, this is hard to see in this light. Um, and read and thought and prayed um, not just um, the liturgical prayers, but my own words. As I took these early steps, um, as I took these early steps toward Jesus, he gently and graciously led me deeper into relationship with him. Um, during this time, my family commitment to Sunday church started to drop off, and my group of Christian friends became more important to me. Then I moved on to university and out of town. There, I immediately connected with the local InterVarsity group and continued to learn. I rarely attended church during these years, but grew and deepened my understanding of and relationship with God. And then I moved on to start my career in a new city, and once again, left behind my Christian friends and mentors. For the next several years, I moved a few times and attended different churches. I was always appreciative of the preaching and teaching and fellowship that I received in these churches, so I agreed to serve whenever asked. For me, it was a way of using my talents and skills to give back to the church to show appreciation for all I received from it. Kind of like a business arrangement. I learned a lot about budgets, facilities management and teaching and event planning and many other things that I was able to take back with me into the workplace. And in return, I made myself available when needed at the church. In mid-2007, I joined the staff at Upper Room in the, uh, in the role of office administrator. It wasn't what I was looking for or anywhere near where I wanted to be in my career, but it's where God wanted me. I knew this because from the moment I came to the ministry center for my first interview, I found the church to be a place of welcome and grace and healing. And right away on the job, I found myself functioning well outside my training, experience, and comfort zone. But I embraced the challenge to be totally open to God's work in my life. I became more connected with people than ever before, and I learned and grew with them. I began to see God working in all areas um, of my life, breaking down walls, healing relationships, and revealing his hand in my life and in the church. And I learned a lot about true worship, not just the more spiritual-seeming work, praying and singing and preaching and teaching, but all the work of our hands. I learned this lesson in my early days on staff. One of my jobs, certainly my least favorite, 
was cleaning the ministry center. Although I enjoy coming into a neat, clean, and organized space, I'm not the best person to be doing it. Um, and cleaning public washrooms wasn't anything I ever wanted to do. I really struggled in my heart the first few weeks. Um, uh, sorry, I can't read this very well. I really struggled in my heart the first few times seeing the mess left behind by the various groups and grumbling to myself that they didn't pick up after themselves. And I realized that I could become bitter and frustrated about it, or I could offer it up to God as worship. So I released it to God. And he transformed my, my heart, not by making cleaning fun, but, <laughs> but by opening my eyes to how the space was used, to the people who came there and, like me, found it a place of grace and healing. And I learned how to love, how to live out daily Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And this was what I really liked. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden that Jesus gives us to carry truly is light because he is carrying it with us. He gives us eyes to see his hands at work, and he gives us the privilege of sharing in the work he is already doing. The Spirit is always with us, taking our hands-on work and somehow making it holy, transforming it into worship of our Savior King. Cleaning the ministry center became worship, and the Holy Spirit filled me with joy and peace. For the first time in my life, um, especially in the last few months as we've been going through the Rooted and now the Discipleship Series or Spiritual Gift Series, for the first time in my life, I'm beginning to really see and appreciate from the inside out, the importance of Christian community. As God lives in community within the Trinity, so he calls us to live in community in the church with Jesus as the head. This came very clearly to me recently as I was reading the current uh, URCC book club recommendation, Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill. In it, during a conversation with one of his professors, he talks about his loneliness and the lack of intimate human relationship in his life. Since he has committed to remaining celibate, um, since he has com uh, committed to remaining celibate, their conversation takes an interesting turn. I think we need a more robust understanding of how necessary human community is. God is the one who created humans to want and need relationships, to crave human companionship, to want and be desired by other humans. God doesn't want anyone to try to redirect their desires for community to himself. Instead, I think God wants people to experience his love through their experience of human community, specifically the church. The New Testament views the church rather than marriage as the primary place where human love is best expressed and experienced. The answer to loneliness is not marriage, but rather the new creational community that God is calling into being in Christ, the, the church marked by mutual love as it is led by the Spirit of Christ. When I read this, it seemed to express much of what I've been experiencing in recent months here at Upper Room. It is in the church that my labor becomes joy, and I receive incredible blessing from those I serve. When I'm using my gifts and talents to fill a need in one area of ministry, I find that someone else is doing something that blesses and encourages me and others around me. 
As we learn to recognize and use the spiritual gifts that God gives to each of us, as we make available to the Holy Spirit all that we have and all that we are, he pours us out to accomplish his purposes in our church, our families, our city, and the world. And as we are poured out in his service, he fills us, renews us, transforms us, adds to who we are, blesses us, equips us. We are made complete in him. God's economy is very different from the stock market. The more we spend ourselves in his service, the much more abundantly rich we become. I think as Catherine describes her journey with this, there's something so profound in realizing that, um, that God has actually called us to find life in his church by both giving and receiving and using our spiritual gifts. And uh, I think she so aptly described this experience of that as we do, you know, God is moving not only through us, but in us. And this is one of those things to grasp as we realize when you come to Jesus, you know, I think my kids are obsessed with superheroes, right? And there's lots of good superhero movies out right now. And in the superhero mentality is each one is trying to discover their destiny and their calling and discover their unique powers. But because the powers are what gives them that sense of identity and meaning. And if they lose the power, they lose themselves. And without discovering the power, then they don't have an identity. That's not how spiritual gifts work in the church. We said that we are, we, our identity comes from the fact that he is our father and he has loved us. He has sent his son to die for us. And so in Jesus, we find all that we are longing for to say, you are loved. You are of utmost importance to the one of utmost importance. That that's our identity. But then as part of our life with God, he gives us gifts to actually use. And as we use them, we become more alive and who we are. And whether they change or we do different roles or whether we sense power when we're using our gifts or not, that doesn't matter because that's not where our identity comes from. But that God can show himself and put himself on display through what we do. And so for some of you, you have gifts that do. And so I want to just spend a few minutes just to kind of read through some of the gifts that do and a bit of a description for you. Um, and it'll be up on the screen. You've got a piece of paper, actually, that says later on, if you have one of these gifts, what's a way that you could use it? Because sometimes you may look and say, well, I don't preach, I don't sing, I don't really like kids, so there's no way for me to serve in this church. Um, <clears throat> and that's not true. There are all kinds of ways, especially those of you that have gifts that do. But let me, So let me describe it. So there's the gift of mercy. Mercy is moving towards the hurty, hurting, needy, weak, marginalized, and victimized, revealing the compassion of Jesus. Mercy is a face-to-face -face gift. And the key here is moving towards. You just have to know, some of us run away from people that are hurting and needy. Some of us, even though we're not actually running away, our hearts are running away. We have this sinking feeling when someone has a need around us. Some of you just have, like, you have radar for this and you move towards it. As soon as you find out that someone is needy or hurting or your hearts are captured by those that are victims, you read stories in the paper and you can't flip the page. You can't click to the next thing on the Yahoo thing because suddenly you're crying. Because you have mercy, your heart goes out to those that are hurting, that are taken advantage of. These are, those of you that have this, you move towards this, but it's a face-to-face, -face, it's not a corporate thing. You are captured by stories, by faces, by individuals, by people that you know. You come across something or someone that has gone wrong and you, you are arrested. And you can't move on until, even though you may feel powerless to do anything about it, you move towards people like that. I, I'm not going to use Jesus for every example, but really when we look at the life of Jesus. And remember I said to you, Jesus was not this superhuman just doing all this stuff because he was God. He was a human being. Yes, he was God, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit filled Jesus, he was always moving towards the needy. He was always moving towards the margins. 
towards those that society, and in those days, if you were sick, you were pushed towards the margin because there was no modern medicine, and so you couldn't get healed. You were just a burden on your family, and so you were pushed to the edges. You had to beg and plead. And Jesus was always stopping in crowds, listening to the cries of those that were hurting and needy. He was face to face. Within crowds, he would see a face, an individual. He would walk towards them. Then the mercy we see in Jesus. Um, you know, Lizette Lavoie, one of the uh, international workers that we're partnered with, she left a teaching job here in Canada at the age of 40 and went over to Guinea, West Africa. And after a few years, came across a couple there, Lazar and Faith, who were helping uh, who were taking kids into their homes who were essentially uh, either orphans of AIDS or infected with HIV and their parents couldn't care for them. And she had gone there to, to, to tell people about Jesus. And as she was doing that, she started to realize this is a need. Now, I, I, I use Lizette as an example because you ever meet her, like some people think people with mercy are like all sweet and syrupy. Okay, Lizette's not. Sweet and syrupy. She'll be very proud the fact that I'm saying that, okay? But she, for the last... Uh, 15 or 10 years has been working with orphans and now is up to her neck in a community of people that are suffering. And so when all of our internationals were pulled out of Guinea, when there was an Ebola crisis, she was here crying with me saying, BJ, I have to go back. I don't care if I don't have medical coverage. I need to go back there. That whole country is hurting. Who better than the church to be there helping? She was someone who was moving towards that. And there are other international workers that work in the city with her, and they're not doing what she's doing. That doesn't mean they're bad people. They have a different sense of calling, but for her, she could not pass by the orphans. Those infected or affected by HIV. She just moved towards them, and her life has moved that way. Um, Look, some of you, I'm going to call out some of your names just to give you examples because I, I see these things in our church. Some of you are going to be upset that I didn't call your name. Some of you are going to be upset that I did, okay? So remember we said, this isn't about you, <clears throat> okay? It's about the Holy Spirit in you. <clears throat> but Lisa Boyd is somebody that I know has the gift of mercy. Lisa is someone who is always moving towards people. In fact, she changed her career to do it, but long before she was doing it for a living, she was doing it with her life. She's someone who cannot pass up someone who is hurting and needy. It is a gift. It's radar for that. And it is a forgetting of self and saying, what do you need? How can, I, how can I help you? That's the gift of mercy. Some of you may see, so it isn't just that you have warm feelings. Maybe you're always like, how do I end up in these situations? But somehow you just keep moving towards it. Friends, it doesn't always feel like you have spiritual power when you are using your gift. This is one of the things. You won't be able to tell often whether you have the gift. You need other people to say it out for you. That's why I'm calling out some of your names. That's what we need to do for each other is say, there's spiritual power in your life when you do this because often we can't see it. We can't feel it. But you keep ending up in these situations. You keep moving towards. You wonder, what is wrong with the rest of the world that everyone isn't seeing what I'm seeing? You have the spiritual gift of mercy. Some of you have the gift of helps. Helps is assisting others in many practical ways with energy and joy, revealing the servant heart of Jesus. You know, Jesus, when he's with his disciples and they have a, they have a dinner together, normally the host, if they have money, they would pay for a servant who would wash the dirty feet of these guys or wearing sandals, hot um, Middle Eastern climate, dusty, dirty feet. And Jesus in the middle of the meal, not just as an object lesson, but because literally they needed their feet washed, serves them and washes their feet. Something needed to be done. It was a task that needed helping, and Jesus did it. There are those of you that have, I think of Jilda Kademi or Steve Oslis. Jilda's mortified that I even mentioned her name. But uh, people who have gifts of helps who say, it doesn't matter what it is, I'll help. They're not fixated on role. They're like, there's a task. And helps gifts are, like mercy gifts are people-focused, face-to-face focused. Helps gift often tend to be task-focused. Something needs to be done. I enjoy doing that with my hands. I enjoy doing help. I don't need to have been told that I was supposed to do this. I'm just going to do it. I may be doing something else, but I see a need. Steve-O's one of those people. 
He's, Steve has two changes of shirts when he comes to lead worship because the first half of the morning, he's just lifting stuff. And you could be a guitar player and you come and you plug in and that's what you do. Steve's always helping people right before service to Pastor Jeannie to water. And, and it has spiritual power. When you walk into this room and it's 8.15 or whatever and you just can't believe you're up at this hour and there's a guy like Steve just moving around. He's got the music going like, and he's just doing whatever needs to be done. It actually lifts up the whole place. When you use your spiritual gifts, there is a spiritual impact that comes with it that often you cannot sense, but others can. And the gift of helps, whenever they do, everybody gets lifted up. Yesterday, we had a whole bunch of people in a certain home group who were going to host that pizza thing for us after we went skating. They were all busy doing. There's so many of you in this church that do this. Whatever needs to be done, you do it. And when you do it, there's, a, there's an increase in power. Jesus is actually made visible. And the, most of these um, doing gifts are behind the scenes. And so not a lot of people see them, but they feel them. They feel the impact of them. That's the gift of helps. Then there's giving slash hospitality. So um, those that are giving hospitalities joyfully and consistently giving away money, time, food, and friendship to reveal the radical grace and the radical inclusion of God. There are some of you that just, that just give. In the, in the early church, there were people that were selling their property. And as Tony mentioned a little while ago when they were doing that, it wasn't just that they were liquidating some assets to pay some money. Property and land was your future inheritance. It was your identity. It got passed on to families. So them selling property and giving money was saying, we have a new family. We understand that blood is not thicker than water. That this is now this new community that needs help. And so if I can help, and so people were radically giving away stuff that they had to give money to others. And there are people, in, I won't name people in this church, but there are people in this church who give away thousands to others. Who will say, I think this person needs a new car, so I'm going to buy one for them. People who come up to me and say, hey, we're going to cash some uh, shares. What do our international workers need right now? People who are radically generous, who are always thinking, you have to understand, that's not normal. Most of us are thinking like this about our money, and maybe we'll give a little bit, or we're going, okay, what do I need to give in order to be obedient to Jesus? And look, every one of us needs to give, right? That, that's part of how we release money's hold on us. But some people, you, you scheme about how to give money away. And, and it's a bad week for you if you haven't been able to do it. And you think if you suddenly get a windfall, you're suddenly thinking, who needs this? I don't need this, who needs this? And it's not about whether you have tons of money in the bank or not. It's how much you have left over. Some of you give, they may, you may think, well, those are small amounts, but it's a large percentage for you. Giving isn't tied to how much is in your bank account. It's a heart that's always trying to bless other people. And when you do, very often, and I, have, I get to see some of the exchanges in here, people say, I, I was just praying this week, or we were desperate this week, or we were saying, God, if you don't come through, and suddenly Jesus shows up because someone says, I need to give. You often don't know the spiritual impact of your gift. You didn't realize that Jesus showed up. And this person knows it wasn't you, it was Jesus. Because I was praying and saying, God, you got to come through for me. And suddenly the Spirit stirs some with the gift of giving, and there's giving and there's receiving, and Jesus is made visible. The other side of that is the gift of hospitality. There are people who love to use their home and their place in their life to show the radical inclusion of God. They're, they're those with the gift of hospitality that open their homes. And, it, and it's when they do it, it's that person feels loved. That person feels included. That person feels like, wow, somebody actually thought about me to, to share a meal with me. Even in this crazy cup holder culture, we still have a need of meaningful exchanges over meals. 
And when we sit down and break bread together, it says something. And those that have the gift of hospitality, and you know, many of you have been over to Howie and Linda's house. And yes, they're great cooks, but this is not the, the crux of the hospitality gift. They design their house in, with other people in mind, with how many people can we fit in this room. When you go to their house, their kids are running to the door, opening the door. Why? Because it's an event. They love having people over. And so many people in our church have been blessed by just being. And when you're in their home, you know, because I think many of us think, well, I don't cook, so I can't do hospitality. Let's just say this. Bottled water, okay, pizza, bagged salad, and two-bite brownies. You're good. You're good to go. It's not about how you cook. You may say, oh, I have a small house. You know what? My mom had the gift of hospitality. There were never enough chairs. Like, we had way beyond fire code regulation numbers of people in our house. And as a kid, I loved it. The place is just pouring over with people. It's not about whether you're a good cook. It's not about whether you think you have a nice house. It's the kind of person you are that when people walk in your room, they want to stay. And, and at my parents' house, even though there was, there was never enough room, people would hang around until all hours, lying on the floor, wherever they could. You go in another room, there's another 20 people in here. What are you doing here? You know, they would just stay. When people have the gifts of hospitality, it's, it's a, it makes them feel included, and so they want to stay there because there's so many other places in life that so many of us feel we don't belong. And people with the gift of hospitality are radically inclusive. They show the including love of God. Leadership. The gift of leadership is directing others with vision, influence, and inspiration. This is a doing gift. And if you think about this, this is the what and why. People with the gift of leadership are saying, what is this about? Why is this important? It's visionary. It's here's where we need to go. Here's what we need to do. Those of you that with the gift of leadership are always thinking big and future. And what does this mean? And how do, and you're thinking about communities of people. Something like the gift of mercy may be a face-to-face gift, but a, a leadership gift is on behalf of community. You're listening to something inspiring. You're thinking, who needs to know this in my life? How do we mobilize people? Nehemiah was a guy that was stirred with the gift of leadership to go and rebuild the temple of God. But it was a vision that he had to say, this should not be. Some of you that have a leadership gift, you think you see the world the way it is and you think it should not be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. I can do something about this. We need to do something about this. People with the gift of leadership are thinking, what needs to happen? Why does it need to happen? Big picture. Nehemiah said, we got to rebuild the city of God because it's torn down. And when the city of God is torn down, people can't see God. And it, cra- it gripped his heart and made him even move and get out of a job that he loved into something else to say, I got to do this. Tracy Rossetti is someone in our community that has leadership. She's someone who's always mobilizing people and she's thinking about, she says, this should not be, I want to do this. She changed her career and taken her, her business and said, how, how does this please God? How, does, how can this be used for God's purposes? A leader says, God has purposes and plans for this world. Even though things look broken down, this is not what, the way God wants it to be. So how do we bring God's plans and purposes into being? Administration is the how and when. Now, some of this looks like some v- details, but a, an administrator is organizing and coordinating individuals and communities towards God-directed outcomes. A leader could say, here's what we need to do, but they have no idea how to do it. I don't have a, a shred of administration in my body which is dangerous. Neither my wife and I do. So our home's a bit chaotic. So if we ever double book you, it just means we like you both, okay? We don't have the gift of administration. Neither of us are organized. An administrator says, this is how we need to do this. They, they look at leaders and go, oh, this is painful to watch you. Can I help you get from A to B? 
because clearly you know B, but you don't know how to get there. Right? An administrator says, and, and, and it's detail-oriented, it's organizing. Some of it may be on a smaller scale, some of it may be on a bigger scale. It just depends what you're doing, where your influence is, what your personality is. But administrator says how and when. When Nehemiah was going to rebuild the temple and the city through Ezra and Nehemiah, God says, choose Zerubbabel. Okay, you don't hear about him a lot. He was the guy that got it done. He actually got it done. It was a massive undertaking to rebuild the temple and the plans and the stones and getting masons and figuring out how to marshal thousands of people towards this end. Where were the funds going to come from? There was someone who had to say, yes, the vision, yes, we believe, but this guy's actually going to help us get it done. And that's what administrators do. Malcolm Billings, uh, an administrative leader in our church. And Tony and I are always calling him to come in and help us with stuff. We need to do this, dot, dot, dot. And Malcolm is one of those people who says, yes, okay, what about this? What about that? How about this? Here's, okay, what if we did this and then this and then this? And you have to know when administrators use their gifts, leaders go, oh, thank you, God. You know, I was going to quit tomorrow. Um, you, there is spiritual power when administrators, and you might just think, well, what is, what is spiritual about organizing? It is intensely spiritual because leaders could sit around all day and the church could sit around all day thinking about what we should do. But the administrators in the community need to say, this is how we're going to do it. And so there is spiritual power when you do it because God's kingdom purposes are actually advanced, not just talked about advancing. You with me? The gift of shepherding. This is not the what and why or the how and when. This is the who. The shepherd's always thinking about how people are going to grow. Coming alongside individuals and communities to help them see, know, and follow God more closely. A shepherd has a heart for people to know God more. A shepherd listens to a plight of a person who is struggling in a life without God and says, oh, I just want you to know the saving power and work of Jesus. A shepherd comes alongside someone who's struggling to sense God in their everyday or to see the reality of it or to know him more, to pursue him more. And a shepherd says, how can I do this? And it's not just for individuals, but it's communities. It's how do we grow together as a community to really know God more. Barnabas, in the New Testament, had the gift of shepherding. He came alongside the Apostle Paul, who just a little while earlier was killing Christians and then had become a Christian, and nobody wanted this guy close, except Barnabas says, yeah, I'll come alongside him. I'll hang out with you. I trust you. I'll walk alongside you. And then later on, when two of the disciples had a disagreement about who was going to go where, and Paul says, this guy's not fit for the journey. He bailed on us before. I'm not taking him again. Barnabas is like, okay, see you later, Paul. I'll go with Mark. You don't want him? I'll go with him. I'll encourage him. I'll go with him. He probably had the gift of encouragement, too. That people who come alongside others. Phonji is, is a great person in our church. She doesn't have any title in the church that she said, yes, I'll volunteer. But she's shepherding people all over the place. Our home group got way more shepherding when she came in. You know, I'm not a shepherd. She's calling people, texting people, phoning people all over the places, people she's still connected to that she's been with. Why? Because she's always walking alongside others to help them see and know God more. She's sharing her life with them. She's praying for them, encouraging them. That's what shepherds do. They come alongside other people and say, let me walk with you. You're struggling, you're hurting, you're lost, confused. How can I? This is different than mercy that says, let me meet sort of a physical need that you have. The shepherd says, come on, come see God with me. I want you to know what I know. I want you to experience what I've experienced. And then apostleship. Apostleship is a pioneering, mobilizing, and influencing communities or movements to expand God's kingdom regionally and globally. This is one of those gifts that's unique, but when it's there, you see it, you know it. 
is a pastor of a church in Chicago, Bill Hybels. He was uh, going to go take over his family's business, but at the age of 21 felt called to start a church with 20 young adults. Bad idea, right? Um, they're now a church of like, I don't know, 30,000 people. And he got gripped with uh, several years ago how the church should be an environment of leadership development. And so started this thing called the Leadership Summit, which is a, a two and a half day kind of leadership conference that is now blasted out to 100,000 people all over the world, I think 75 countries. And this is a guy who's let into all kinds of churches, doesn't matter what denomination he's from, doesn't matter what ethnic background he's from, doesn't matter that he's American, we still love him. It doesn't matter, he was in, been invited into people's communities and homes and churches because he has a gift of apostleship. There's an authority that he has beyond himself and that God has used him and many others to influence the whole world in this direction. It's a unique gift, but when you see it, you know it. Many of the people who go overseas, to start movements or work with new people groups. They have, this, they have apostleship. They have a pioneering spirit that just says, I don't care if nothing's there. I know what needs to be there. I'm going to go start it. And as they go, there's like a wake of influence and people that come behind them. And suddenly something comes out of nothing. It's the spirit of God. It's, it's how many of the churches, how many churches are planted and grown is those with the gift of apostleship. And you may think, well, how do I know? Well, there's something in you that's just troubling, saying, I need to do this. I want to do this. And as you move, you see, realize there's people actually following you. It's, there's a movement behind you. Any one of these doing gifts, and, and I, I'm convinced that in many respects, you may not know you have them until you start actually doing stuff. But we talked about how how, what happens when you do these things with the fruit of the Spirit, which is character, and in the power of the Spirit, where that comes from? There's joy. Like if you have doing gifts and use it, and you find like one of the clues, say, do I have joy when I'm doing this? And Catherine talked about that's not just some nice feeling. God actually led her to be able to grasp joy because what she was doing in cleaning washrooms was actually worship. But it was a joy that came as she was doing because the Spirit actually is forming character in her of love for other people. And that's how that works. So there's a joy in, in what you're doing. There's an energy in what you're doing. There's probably growth. If you're using your gifts that do, you should be growing in your character. There's something about you that's changing. And there's impact, there's, whether, you're not, whether you realize it or not. And this is why we have to tell each other why we appreciate each other. You know, I don't know what it is, whether it's Canadians or what. We're just so afraid to say to someone, that was powerful when you did that. You think, I'm going to sound weird. But thank you so much. And there are so many of you that when you do what you do, there is spiritual impact in the lives of everybody else, and we feel it. That's some of how we know, is this a gift? Is this something that God has called me to do? Is there joy as I'm doing it? Is there growth as I'm doing it in my life? Is there spiritual impact? If we do it without the character of the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen, especially to many of these gifts that are behind-the-scenes gifts? You will become bitter that you're serving and other people aren't. And you're thinking, why am I the only one that sees this? Well, part of it is because you have a spiritual gift to see it. And yes, we need to come alongside you, but you can't be annoyed with us for not seeing it. If you're mad at people that you serve with, better take a step back from that serving and just say something's disconnected from this. And we can see this actually all over the place, not just in the church, but there are many people, or maybe you've been helped by people, but while they're helping you, they kind of like jab you with it. It doesn't feel like help. Oh, let me do that for you. Right? Mer people with the gift of mercy and house, you be like, why are they always calling me? Because you have the gift. But if you feel that, something's disconnected from, from the joy and the spirit. There's something gone wrong. I'm not saying you should stop doing it, but you need to say, wait a second, why is there no joy in this? 
if, if, you're, if your character is not growing, if you're not letting the Holy Spirit actually shape your character to bear fruit, you're not going to do it well. You might be bitter or frustrated or annoyed with people. Or maybe you'll be harsh as you lead. A leader that is not leading out of character is going to be harsh. Someone who's, a, who's an administrator, it's going to be like, God, give me that. An administrator is going to be annoyed. People have all these dreams and no idea of how to get there. If you have that annoyance with people that have vision, something's gone on in your heart. If you're mad at people that they're not going where you think they should be going, something's disconnected in your heart. Something's off. We cannot actually do these gifts apart from the fruit and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if something is off, it's paused to say, wait a second, have I disconnected myself from the source of power and of character in this? How do I get back connected with the Holy Spirit? I need to pray. I need to ask someone to say, hey, can you pray for me? Can you help me? Because my heart's not right in this. Because the church isn't this place, like as Catherine said, she first thought it was this place where, oh, you give back because of what you receive. That's not how it works. It's a place where the Holy Spirit makes Jesus evident through you. But if your character is crumbling, people can't see Jesus in you. All they see is you. All you see is them. All you see is you. You got to get that heart fixed again. And so if that's you and you think, I may have one of these gifts, here's my kind of three things for you. Do something, do something differently, or do something else. For some of you, maybe you just need to, to just do something. Just start. Whatever it is, you're going to do something. And, and you, maybe you don't know if you have a gift or not, but you're like, I'm going to try this. Or maybe this, maybe this is where I'm at. Maybe this is how I could grow. Some of you, you're doing it, but you need to do it differently in the sense that you need to do it out of your spiritual gift. Say, how can I do what I'm doing? See, spiritual gifts and roles don't always tie up. Like I said to you, Steve's a guitar player. That's not a spiritual gift. I wish it was. I prayed for it many times. I haven't got it. He's using his gifts of helps while he's playing guitar. So the, like, it's just how you do what you do, you do it differently. So you mean to say, how, how is God actually giving me power to do How can I do what I'm doing the way I need to do it? Rather than looking at someone else and say, I should do it like that. Or how come I can't do it like that? No, God wants you to do it how he's made you, how he's wired you. So some of you maybe just need to do what you're doing, do it differently. Others of you maybe need to do something else. Maybe there's some other place in the church you say, you know what, I want to serve. I want to try this out. I want to actually experience this. So you think, maybe I've been doing this for a long time. Maybe I need to do something else. If, if I've got a sense, maybe if I'm wearing out a little bit or I've disconnected or whatever, maybe I just need to do something else or begin to do it differently. This morning, we're going to take communion together. And in a few moments, Kate's going to lead us. We're going to invite the worship team to come up. The communion table says this that my love is real. That the love of Jesus is actually real for us. That it's not just this kind of spiritual idea, but that somehow his love is made known to us. Even as you taste that bread and that wine, it's not really wine. You all know that. (laughs) It's physical elements. It reminds us that Jesus is present, that he was once present flesh and blood, and now he is present in the flesh and blood of the church as the community. And that his love is real. Some of you maybe need to come to the communion table this morning and say, okay, Jesus, give me a new passion for what I'm doing. Help me find the joy in how I'm serving. Some of you may need to say, okay, Jesus, whatever you want to do with my life, I'm willing to do. Others of you may say, Jesus, help me feel the spiritual impact of what I'm doing. Teach me how to do like you do. Teach me how to love. You know when it says like, show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. If Jesus is real and he's really present as we use our gifts together, then as Kate invites us, you come uh, to the communion table.
I just want to bless you that as you go and do, and, and some of you may just do because you know it needs to be done, and others you're going to do because you're going to discover this is your spiritual gift. But I pray that as you do, you will be able to say, wow, Jesus is real. That you will sense his presence in you, through you, and that those around you would be able to say, wow, Jesus is real. And if there's been a disconnection between what you've been doing and the reality of Jesus, in the name of Christ, I just pray that those would be reconnected again today. And that as you do, you say, wow, Jesus, you're real. <laughs> I always said I believe this. I know it again. You have the reality of Jesus in what you are doing. Do you receive that? Thanks so much for coming.